So we've entered that time of year where we don't know whether we should put the thermostat on or not. It's cool in the mornings and the evenings, but it's still warm during the day. Uh, in my household, I like to defy reality, and so the thermostat does not get touched until the 1st of October. Put a sweater on. Uh, wear some thick socks. Of course, my family don't always see eye to eye with me on that. So I had a, a, a pretty interesting experience this past week. I took one of my kids off to one of their activities on Tuesday, uh, and I decided I didn't want to do the whole driving backwards and forwards thing. Gas is going up, if you haven't noticed that. So I figured I would just stay and do some sermon work. I'll do a bit of reading, do a bit of prep on my sermon. Uh, so I'm sitting in the car, and I open up my iPad, and uh, I kind of start typing, and I get this notification across the top uh, that somebody has sent me a message request on Messenger. Uh, and of course, when somebody sends you a message request, that means they're not in your trusted friend circle or something like that. It's, you know, somebody reaching out. And, and of course, nine times out of ten, it's just spam. Uh, and so most of us probably just ignore those. But for whatever reason, I figured I don't know who this guy is. Let me check his profile and, and kind of see who this could be. So I click view profile and up comes the profile. And, and the profile picture of this young man is... Uh, a guy proudly standing in his white shirt, black tie, little black name tag, proudly holding up the Book of Mormon. And so I realized, ah, okay, now I understand why you want to have a chat with me. Uh, if you know who I am, I'm figuring you're probably going to get bonus points for trying to convert a Baptist preacher. Uh, or you have no idea who I am, and you're, you know, you're evangelizing. And, and so I kind of, I take the bait. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, you can ask me a question, because he, you know, wanted to ask me a question. And of course, he asks me this question about what does eternal family mean to you? And so we start entering into a conversation, and we're having, uh, you know, a couple of Q&A backwards and forwards. And, and I'm trying as best as possible in, in every answer to allude to, to the Trinitarian nature of God in some way. And of course, that's deliberate. Because I know that Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. Uh, their view of the Trinity is very different to what would be called traditional or orthodox Christian view. So we're having this conversation, and eventually he responds and goes, That's awesome! I'm a Christian too! And of course I'm kind of like, mm, mm. You know, I never want to kind of judge anyone's eternal position before God, because I'm not the judge. That's God's job. Uh, but I'm kind of sitting there going, yeah, okay, uh, let me ask you some, some questions. And of course, I start asking, well, do you believe in the triune nature of God, that God is one eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is not simply our Messiah, but he is eternally existing, not created, and he is equal to God the Father? And of course, I know exactly what his answer is going to be. His answer is no, because that's not what Mormons believe. And so eventually, after a long conversation, and I'm kind of thinking I'm supposed to be working on a sermon, I, I make this comment, and I say, look, I know this is going to sound really offensive, and I'm, I'm sorry, but 
Every single creed from the Apostles' Creed through the Nicene Creed all the way to the Westminster Confession of Faith all the way through to even the London Confession of Faith of 1689 or whatever it is all of the statements of faiths, all of the creeds of all of history all refer to God in Trinitarian nature. And so anything that veers away from that, anything that denies the Trinitarian nature of God and that Jesus Christ is eternal and equal within the Godhead cannot be called Christian. And of course, that's pretty much where the conversation ended. Maybe I was a little too blunt and, and maybe next time I won't be quite so blunt and try and have a little more conversation. But it kind of got me thinking, and, and the, the meme or the image that came to mind was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, where the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air talks about Carlton, and he says, uh, he a little confused, but he got the spirit. And, and why I thought that was I was sitting there going, here's a guy who, he's keeping up with the times. COVID means people aren't really going door to door. He's still evangelizing. He's still trying to convert. He's still fueled and fired up in his passion and in his faith. And so he's reaching out to random strangers on Facebook because he wants them to believe what he believes. He wants them to know what he knows. And I thought to myself, man, we could learn from that. If we could have that evangelistic zeal, if we could have that firm belief, that desire that those around us who do not know Jesus Christ, who do not worship God, need to hear and need to have the opportunity to hear, I think our world would be a very different place. And that's kind of why we're diving into the book of Acts. Over the next couple of weeks, as we read through the book of Acts, and as Pastor Jennifer made mention a moment ago, we're titling the series, The Gospel on the Ground, which, yes, is uh, flagrant theft. It's not a title we came up with. It is the title of a book by Christy McClelland called The Gospel on the Ground, and that's what some of our life groups will be going through. But the image of the gospel on the ground is crucial for the series. Because it's that image of the gospel being born, of the church being born, and the church taking that gospel into the far reaches of the world. As the church witnesses, as the church testifies to God at work. And I know some of us might kind of think, well, uh, Brian, are you just going to challenge us over the next 10 weeks to simply uh, go out and, and be evangelists? Uh, what about my life? Or, or how does this make sense for me? How does this change my daily living? Uh, the answer is yes to both. I think Acts is going to stretch us in that idea of what does it mean to witness? What does it mean to share our faith and our belief? But at the same time, as we journey through Acts, we're going to see in incredible ways God present, the Holy Spirit present in our lives. And as we submit, as we yield, as we worship, so we grow in that same time. You know, the book of Acts is, is a fascinating book. Over the next 10 weeks, we won't read through every single verse. We don't have that kind of time frame. And so I would encourage you, I would challenge you, over the next couple of weeks, 
make a point of reading the book of Acts from chapter 1 all the way through to the end. Do it a couple of times over. Become familiar with the story and the events. You know, some scholars have argued that Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. For me, I kind of struggle with that sort of comment. In fact, I struggle with saying any book is more important than another book. Because for me, that's a little bit of say, like saying what side of the coin is the most important side. It, 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 like they're both actually pretty important. You need them both. You're not buying anything with a one-sided loony. That's just not going to happen. And so, yes, it is an important book. And it's important because it, it acts almost like a, this hinge point, this turning point in the journey of the gospel. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then after Acts, we have the epistles and the, the, the apostolic letters to the church explaining how to live. But kind of caught in the middle is this book of Acts where the church is born and where the gospel moves, where the gospel on the ground impacts the world and makes a difference. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, live in this book, that is the book of Acts, Live in this book, I exhort you. It is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know in the realm of the Spirit. And what he meant by that was because we see the Spirit at work. You know, we call it the book of Acts because historically it's always been known or it was known initially as the Acts of the Apostles. Because yes, we will see the way the apostles work and move and, and kind of the activity of the apostles in that early life of the church. But I think we do ourselves a disservice by simply saying Acts of the Apostles. And why I say that is because you and I then start to compare ourselves against the Apostles. And I know some of you might kind of align, but I don't. When I compare myself with the Apostles, I'm like, I'm woefully inadequate. I don't match up to these guys. And I think we might read it in that mindset and go, I'm never going to be like that. But it's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of God. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through willing servants of God. Through men and women who simply said to God, here I am, use me. And God moves in incredible ways. And I kind of realized, hey, I can do that. I might not be an apostle, but I can do that. I can say, God, here I am, use me. And that's when we see incredible things take place. As we read through this book, we're going to see movement. It's this crucial idea that the gospel doesn't just sit still. It doesn't just stay unmotivated and unmoving. In fact, in a few moments when we get into Acts chapter 1, we're going to see this movement from Jerusalem to Judea to all of Samaria. As the gospel moves from its simple individual locality into the rest of of the world. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. Of course, as we, as we read this book, some of us might kind of go, okay, it's just it's history. You know, it, it's really just telling the, the history of the church. And we might read it as history, but then miss that the book is loaded with deep theology. The book is loaded with instruction to early Christians and to you and I of what it means to live in faith. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Acts is a treasure trove for those who are willing to mine into it 
and for those who are willing to go deep into the book. And that is my hope and prayer for each one of us. Not simply that Brian or Jennifer or whoever would be up on stage and say a couple of words and then we go, oh, okay, we learned something new and off we go. No. My prayer and my hope for all of us is that we would be spurred to action and that we would join the gospel on the ground as God acts and as God moves in this world. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to find a few key themes out of this book. Some of the deep doctrines and themes, things like the priority of evangelism, beginning with the Great Commission recorded in chapter 1 and moving through. We're going to learn about the power of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is active and moves in our lives and in our world. We're going to come to grips with this idea of community life. What does it mean to be a community of believers in Jesus Christ? Not simply a bunch of individuals who happen to come together occasionally on a Sunday morning and share some coffee and cake after church. I'm sorry, we don't have any cake for you today. We're going to look at prayer. We're going to look at breaking human barriers. We're going to look at the place of suffering in the life of the believer, the sovereignty of God, and, and many, many others. I think finally and most importantly, we will discover that by studying the book of Acts that took place roughly 2,000 years ago, still has tremendous value and application for you and I today. We're going to be challenged. You know, we live in a society where individualism reigns supreme. It's all about me. It's all about I want, what I want. And we're going to be challenged to remember that we live in community. In a world where narcissism and selfishness are simply relabeled as looking after yourself and pursuing happiness, we're going to be challenged to realize that we're called to live selfless lives in giving and in serving one another. In a world where pluralism and subjective truth are the only accepted dogma, Acts is going to challenge us with the truth of God in triune nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, that are universally and objectively true. And of course, in a society that denies absolute truth, that's going to be a challenge for us. And then, sadly perhaps, in a world that seeks pleasure above all else, we're going to read through Acts and realize that no disciple of Jesus Christ will avoid suffering. Suffering is part and parcel of life, and it is part and parcel of the Christian life. But we're going to discover that even in the midst of suffering, we're not alone. God is there with us. So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, we're just going to read the first, whoops, the first 11 verses uh, from Acts 1, 1 to 11. I know it will be up on the screen as well, but you're welcome to turn to, you, turn to that in the Bible. Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, 
after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And we'll stop there for today. You know, as I, I read through those first 11 verses, there is a lot in there. In fact, those first few verses really open up the, theolo the theological themes that are going to come further in the book of Acts. But while I read it and kind of say to myself, okay, what's, what's the nugget here? What, what's the, the focal point? What should we be reading and mining into? I think there are three key themes from this passage. And the first key theme that jumps out at me is this idea that Jesus taught. In fact, in the first four verses, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, we read that Jesus taught, he instructed, he spoke, and he commanded. And we understand that in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that's what he did. In fact, it, it seems like his primary focus was on teaching on explaining everything that had taken place and how they relate to the truth of the gospel. Luke writes for us, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And what, what Luke is doing is he's showing us that Jesus' ministry wasn't only healing and power and miracles. Jesus' ministry includes teaching. Unpacking the word, explaining to his disciples and to the crowds, instructing them on, on, on faith, on matters of belief, on doctrine and theology. And even that word instructed, it implies a sense of command. Jesus is instructing and giving commands. And of course, the expectation is that his disciples will obey. In fact, isn't that what Jesus says? If you love me, you will obey my commands. And so Jesus is instructing. And of course, we kind of go, well, what did he teach? Well, that's what the Gospels record for us. Jesus taught the objective truths about the kingdom of God. 
That the kingdom was at hand. The kingdom was here. And that there was life eternal for those who would enter into the kingdom. For those who would turn in faith. And Luke actually says that not only was he teaching, he was giving proof to this. In fact, he was giving proof that he was alive. That's what Luke says for us in verse 3. Because most of the, the crowds didn't believe. The crowds were like, hold on, wasn't this guy crucified? Wasn't this guy on a cross? Wasn't he buried for three days? Surely he cannot be alive. Yet Jesus comes and he shows, here I am. I have risen from the dead. And it's that reminder to us that, yes, Christ's crucifixion is important because Christ died for our sins, but his resurrection is equally important because his resurrection shows to us that Jesus does, in fact, have power over life and death. And so when Jesus says to you and I, don't be afraid of death because through me you will receive life forever, he shows I have, have the power to do this. And so Jesus taught. And it's the reminder for you and I that our faith is based on objective facts. It's supported by the evidence of history. There is historical and archaeological evidence for much of what we believe. Yes, not every single question is answered. And yes, we, we still have those doubts and those challenges. That's why I love the quote that was said many years ago. God has revealed enough of himself to make faith in him a reasonable response, but not so much as to make faith unnecessary. God has revealed enough of himself. There is enough objective truth. There are, there are enough facts that make faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, a reasonable response. But he's not Revealed so much that makes faith unnecessary. And this is why we keep talking about people joining life groups, getting into small groups, getting into Bible studies. Because it is crucial for you and I in our faith journey to grow in our understanding of the word. To grow in our understanding of the facts of our faith. It is so important for us to know the word so that when we get those random Facebook requests from someone who believes something different, who is trying to convert us, we're able to say, wait a minute, that is error. That is false. My friend, I bless you and, and, and you stand free before God to believe what you want to believe, but what you believe is not true according to the word. I only know that when I'm studying the word. And so Jesus teaches. Jesus explains. Now you've heard us talk about the fact that right here, White Rock Baptist Church seeks to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ, worshiping God and growing in faith to impact the world. That's what teaching does. As I learn, so I grow in my faith and I grow in my understanding Get into a life group. Get into that small group where you can be stretched and you can be challenged and you can ask questions. Pick up a book from the library from time to time. Have that, have that faith within you stirred and stretched as you wrestle with the doctrines of faith. You know, one of the reasons why some of the cults exist is because their founders wrestled with some of our beliefs and said, no, I just cannot believe that. 
And often it's around the Trinity. And as, even today, as much as I believe and I have deep faith, my mind still goes, I can't make sense of it. I struggle with making sense. But I have to remind myself, well, God is God, not me. And there's a lot about God that I don't understand. And that's why I'm not God. And so I trust. And then I read and I study the Word. And I'm supported by the facts that I do understand. So Jesus taught. But Jesus didn't only teach. Jesus also spoke about the need for ministry to be empowered. And this is the second key theme that jumps out for me in verses 1 through 11, and that will kind of be shown all throughout the book. And it's this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's this role of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer. In fact, that's what Jesus' command to them was. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And for those who know their Bibles and those who know Acts, know that in just a few moments when we get into chapter 2, we're going to have that Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is released and the Holy Spirit does come upon that early church. We're going to look into that a little bit more next week. But today I want to understand this idea of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them to wait, because as important as the knowledge is, as important as the understanding, the teaching is, Jesus knew that that wouldn't be enough for their ministry. They needed to be empowered. You and I need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I know that as soon as I use the words baptized by the Holy Spirit, for some of us, or actually for most of us, it elicits all sorts of responses. Because it's a term we hear in so many different places. It causes a lot of debate. In fact, even in some circles, it causes arguments. And largely, it's about this idea of when. When are we baptized with the Holy Spirit? I might be able to read through Acts chapter 2 and go, okay, there's this event that takes place, but that takes place for the apostles. What about for me? When do I receive the Holy Spirit? When am I baptized with the Holy Spirit? When do I know that I am now empowered for ministry in the kingdom of God? And a lot of the debate circles around, are we baptized when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior at that point of conversion? Or is there a second experience? Meaning that when I turn to Christ in faith and I receive Jesus into my life and I declare him Lord and Savior and I repent of my sins and turn to him, do I receive then or does it come later on? You know, one scholar said this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit may be defined as that work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was predicted by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 and by Jesus before he ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. This promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. For the first time, people were permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the church had begun. So when do I receive this Holy Spirit? 
I think Paul explains this to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, probably one of the central passages around the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit, Paul says to us, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And notice when Paul says, For we were all baptized by the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that all believers receive the Spirit at that moment of salvation. It's not a separate special experience only for a few. Paul affirms that we receive, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we turn to God in faith. Now, as we'll point out next week, that doesn't mean that we should not desire the Holy Spirit to move within us. But my brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've uttered those words, God, come into my life, Jesus, be Lord of my life, at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You have the Holy Spirit. I think the problem is not so much whether we have or don't have the Holy Spirit, it's whether or not we're aware of it and whether or not we yield to the Spirit. Whether or not we respond to the Spirit's promptings. We have the Holy Spirit. I think what we need to desire is not that baptism, but we need to desire an awareness. We need to desire a growing obedience to the promptings of Scripture and to the promptings of the Spirit. Aware that when I linger with God, when I linger in His Word, and I begin to apply His Word into my daily life, when I begin to do what the Bible says, it's at those times and those moments when I begin to see the Holy Spirit at work. Linger with God. As I said, we'll go deeper into that next week when we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the early church and what that means for you and I as we serve God and as we serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus knew we needed to learn, we needed to be taught, but we also needed that input, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love, this is just a, a really quick aside. I love that Jesus is teaching them. Jesus tells them about the coming Holy Spirit and the disciples still don't get it. <laughs> they still don't get it. In verse 6 to 8, so that when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? His disciples still thought in this parochial little empire mindset. They still thought our nation of Israel is going to be reborn and we're going to get an earthly king and all the nations will bow to us and all the nations will declare us as being the greatest. And Jesus, in a sense, goes, listen, dimwits, the gospel is for all. The gospel is to reach the furthest ends of the globe and the world. It's not about one little nation. It's not about one little people group. That power of the Holy Spirit wasn't to fill their little national view. It was for all the world. And this is the third point that jumps out of us in this passage because Jesus goes on to say, and it's this idea of being witnesses. 
Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Imagine for a moment that you're at an intersection and you're waiting for the cross light. And it's red so you can't cross, you're just standing, minding your own business. And while you're waiting for the light to change so that you can cross the intersection, a car turning across the intersection hasn't seen an oncoming car. And right in front of you in the intersection is an accident. Now, thankfully, everyone's okay, so don't worry about that. But there's an accident in front of you. When the police ask for what you saw, for, for their records and for insurance's purposes, no one expects you to know the horsepower of the car or the velocity at which it was traveling, or whether it was five feet across the line or six feet across the line. No one is going to expect you to know all those little things. All they want from you is, this is what I saw. All I saw was a car turning in, hadn't seen the car coming, and that car hit them. That's what a witness is. I don't have to know all the facts. I don't have to have an answer to every single question. I don't know how big those tires are. I don't know whether they had enough tread on them or not. I don't know if that person applied the brake at the right time. I simply know what I saw. And I wonder if sometimes for some of us, we struggle with this idea of witnessing. We struggle with this idea of sharing our faith because we somehow think we have to answer every single question first. And we're afraid that when we start speaking, someone is going to say, but what? That's when we go, I don't know. Great question. Let's go find it out if we can. But this is what I do know. I know what has happened to me. And I share what has happened to me. If we pray, God, give us our daily bread, then why don't we thank Him by telling others about the daily bread we receive? You know, often we think about it's just the big things. No, it's, it's the little things as well. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You will witness to what I'm doing in your life. You don't have to give all the answers. You know, when Jesus speaks to his early disciples, he says, you will be witnesses to both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And in fact, for them, witnesses to the ascension as well. The apostles saw the risen, resurrected Christ, and they were witnesses to this fact. Now, of course, you and I weren't there. You and I didn't see that event. You and I aren't first-hand witnesses. But if you and I believe this book to be true, and if you and I believe the witness of this word, then we can be witnesses to the event because we trust that this is true. And so I believe Jesus Christ did, in fact, live and that he taught and performed miracles. I do believe Jesus Christ was crucified, yes, for our sins, but he died a literal death. I do believe that Jesus Christ was buried in a tomb, that he lay there, dead. I do believe that three days later, Jesus rose to life again. And I believe that after Jesus rose to life again, he ascended back to glory, to the right hand of the, of the triune Godhead. And I do believe that Jesus is coming back in the same way 
He ascended. Amen. I believe it because the Word of God tells me. And that's what I share. And so as we witness, we witness to what we know. We witness to what we experience. Some days God will give us incredible testimonies. A couple of weeks ago we prayed for healing for a bunch of people in the front of this church. Two people received miraculous healing. Verified by medical science where both of their doctors could not explain it what happened. And I've already spoken about one of those. But in two cases, the doctors were confounded and said, we don't know what to say. And both simply went, it's a miracle. To which the doctors went, yes. But that's not a legal definition that we're allowed to use. Sometimes God will do that. Sometimes God will give far beyond our daily bread. But you know, the reality is God doesn't seem to do that as often. God seems to journey with us in our daily lives, through the thick and the thin, in the mountaintops and the valley. And it's when we learn to see God in our daily humble lives that we can testify to the fact that He is with us. And I know some of you are going through painful experiences, and you're going through suffering. Acts is going to encourage you. Not that your suffering is necessarily going to be taken away, but that God is there with you. And what a powerful testimony. When I can say to somebody in the midst of my suffering, I do not give up hope because I know God is with me. That is what confounds the world. The gospel on the ground begins with us studying the word, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then simply witnessing to what God has done. This opening chapter, these opening portions show us how we're involved in the gospel on the ground as we simply obey and as we yield. As disciples of Christ, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we study his word, as we rely on the Holy Spirit, and as we witness, that's when we experience this life that we're called to live. Many of us desire that life that Jesus promised, that abundant life. We're not going to find it following the world's ideals of amassing, of, of hoarding, of focusing on self and the pursuit of our own pleasure. No, we find life when we give our life to the service of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, as I read your word given to us. And as I read the accounts of disciples, apostles in the early church, who understood what it meant to, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, understanding and knowing the word and truth, but then going and being witnesses, they knew what true life looked like. And they experienced that life. And so, God, I pray, would you help each one of us? Help us to study, to spend time in your word, to linger with it. And then as we apply it and as we put it into practice, Holy Spirit, move through us. So that indeed your gospel might go to the furthest reaches of this globe. 
And that men and women, young and old, who do not know you would find life in Jesus Christ. And they too would turn and receive life forevermore. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.